Oh, God. Ooh. Oh, God. Oh. 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 Yes! Oh! 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 Oh, God. Oh. I'll have what she's having. Hey y'all, I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen, and today we're bringing y'all an extra unladylike bonus episode from our Patreon. You may have heard us shouting out our Patreon at the end of every episode, but just to catch you up, patreon.com slash unladylikemedia is where you can support Kristen and me directly. For five bucks a month, you get a new ad-free bonus episode every week and instant access to all 70-plus previous bonus episodes. It's a lot of content, people. Now, sometimes we go deeper on main feed podcast conversations, like uh, we did a deep dive on the Puerto Rico birth control pill trials that we discussed recently. Other times, we tackle listener advice questions that don't make it into Ask Unladylike. And sometimes we run across phrases like lean-in sexuality that we simply have to discuss further. And boy, does it get dirty at parts. Um, This discussion in particular gets into the really surprising amount of time and money that some folks will spend in the pursuit of more orgasms. And we thought this conversation was so fun and so unladylike that we wanted to share it here with y'all on the main feed. That's right. Get ready for a lot of sexy talk, a lot of pleasure pressure, and the pursuit of the O. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So... Kristen, I came across this article in the L.A. Review of Books called Lean In Sexuality and the Labor of Self-Discovery by Sarah Stoller. And listen, I'm going to be honest, like if you put lean in blank in a headline, like I'm going to click that so fast. Also, the concept of lean in sexuality, just to do a little improv for a moment, (laughs) it makes me think of a woman in a business suit who is bent over a desk? Oh, I was I was gonna say just like full on fucking on a boardroom table. Oh, yeah. Um because she's not gonna be bent over Caroline. Well, I was just thinking of oh, the she's leaning. leaning in. Oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't really sure what I was going to read, but Stoller's talking about basically the commodification of sexual pleasure. And I just want to start out by saying that, like, throughout this conversation, we're going to be citing two pieces. Stoller's piece, uh, Lean in Sexuality, and then a great one that she cites by Catherine Smith over at The Atlantic titled The Tyranny of the Female Orgasm Industrial Complex. Now that... Fuck. That's a great term. The female orgasm industrial complex. I immediately know what she's talking about. Exactly. When she says that. So that paired with lean and sexuality, y'all know where we're going. Okay. So um, they're both talking about how 
the striving for an orgasm has become not just an issue of, are you enjoying yourself? Are you having a pleasurable experience? Are you getting off? No, the central question is around a phenomenon known as the orgasm gap. It's a term coined by University of Florida professor Lori Mintz, and it's meant to describe the phenomenon in heterosexual relationships of women having fewer orgasms than men on average in those relationships. Uh, And according to a 2016 study from the Archives of Sexual Behavior, 95% of heterosexual men reported they usually or always orgasm during sex compared to 65% of heterosexual women who were the least likely. And Mintz basically blames the orgasm gap on, number one, the cultural ignorance of the clitoris. Number two, inequality in the bedroom, which, she says, stems from the way that sex is depicted in media, particularly porn, and a, quote, cultural overprivileging of male sexuality and a devaluing of female sexuality. And so as part of this, like, orgasm gap conversation, I'm pretty sure we even wrote about this in our book at one point, Kristen. Um, (laughs) In these studies of who's having orgasms, when, how much, with whom, uh, on what day of the week, um, lesbians tend to have the most Mm -hmm. in their sex lives, uh, whereas women who are in sexual relationships with cis men have the fewest. Now, I okay, I'm going to, throughout this conversation, I'm going to have some... Some kind of quibbles. I'm going to be yeah. a little bit of a naysayer in I, this. I welcome it. Because one of my initial side eyes to okay. conversations that I have seen about the orgasm gap mm-hmm. is that it also prioritizes partnered sex yes. and orgasms and delegitimizes solo sex orgasms. Yeah. You know, I do have to appreciate, though, like I I appreciate the alarm bell that the coining of the term rings. Mm -hmm. I appreciate someone pointing out what probably a lot of folks already sort of know in their hearts or in their private parts that like I'm not having as many orgasms as I would like for whatever the reason is. So both Stoller and Smith point out that there are a lot, a lot of efforts out there to help women reclaim their sexuality, get comfortable with their sexuality, uh, to overcome any mental, emotional, and physical barriers to sexual intimacy they might have, to orgasm they might have. Because we know over years of research, you know, having an orgasm is not just like snapping your fingers. There's a lot of like mental and emotional stuff that goes along with it. Um, So, I mean, on its face, like that's a good thing. Yeah. Right. Like that's a good thing. Like let's help people get in touch with their sexuality, communicate their desires, achieve those desires democratize pleasure absolutely i love that i love that that phrase so like yes smith and stoller are both like this is a great thing until 
the pressure to orgasm becomes worse than not orgasming at all until the pleasure pressure Mm -hmm. becomes so stressful Mm -hmm. and overwhelming that it sucks the joy right out of the process. Yes. And so through their writing, they're putting forth a couple of questions, which I think are important. So in these efforts to close the orgasm gap, who is really being helped and who is really benefiting? Yeah, what what when we talk about female pleasure and women's sexuality, like what women are we really talking about? Are we trying to force the sex drives and preferences of women and non-binary folks to fit into a stereotypical cishet male model? Are we saying you are deficient if you are not horny X amount of time? Well, also, though, don't conflate horniness and orgasms. Right. And are you deficient if you are not having an orgasm right. X number of times, at least, you know, 95% of the time or whatever arbitrary amount? Also, where is the line between a healthy dose of, like, working on yourself, trying to accept your sexuality, like, you know, grappling with your comfort level with yourself, and then just putting way too much pressure on yourself? Right, because nothing will just make a potential really any kind of sexual pleasure and satisfaction, Mm -hmm. whether that includes an orgasm or not, nothing will suck that dry, no pun intended, (laughs) like like being (laughs) overly goal-oriented. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just me. (laughs) No, it's true. It's true. And we'll get into it. But like uh, Catherine Smith in her writing has made it very clear that I don't think she ever wants to hear the words like, just relax. Oh, God. Ever again. Who ever does, really? Another big question they raise in their writing, are we putting the blame for less than ideal sex, orgasm or not, are we putting it too squarely on women's shoulders? Is this sort of female orgasm industrial complex, is the lean-in sexuality in its effort to, quote-unquote, empower us, Mm. is it also putting too much of the blame and is it assuming that something is wrong when really, like, spoiler, we're all different and all of our bodies are different? Yeah. I would also want to reframe that question rather than saying, like, putting the blame for less than ideal sex on women's shoulders. I also feel like what's baked into that is we are trying to force a singular definition of sexual satisfaction onto everybody. Yeah. I agree. Then, the key question underlying all of this, one of the key questions, why does it all seem to cost so much? Yeah. Trying to get in touch with your body, with your orgasms, with what turns you on and gets you off. Why is it so much money? And to me, it just feels like it fits in with wellness culture, like, so hard. Yes. There's a lot of, yes. like, it is the sexual wellness equivalent of, like, boss babe mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, obviously that's what Stoller's getting at by referring to lean-in sexuality. But uh, that's just another facet of the, like, putting so much pressure on yourself or feel just internalizing so much pressure. It turns it into almost like a... A type of invisible status symbol in a way, a status for your like 
self-actualization exactly. and liberation like exactly. to be like multi-orgasmic and yeah. you come every time blah 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 yeah and you're like squirting across the room because it's like uh, and yeah. also nothing wrong with being multi-orgasmic no, coming uh, every time and squirting across the room absolutely <laughs> not but i mean if we're talking pleasure pressure i think that's a lot of pressure to live up to exactly um but i mean i think you make a good point because we are in a period where like women's sexual empowerment is supposed to be like we're just supposed to be living it right we we're supposed to be so celebratory of women's sexuality of like our sexual liberation and like like we're supposed to be past the point where we're fighting for like equal time in the bedroom and we're supposed to be like yes i'm owning my sexuality we're all samanthas from sex in the city (laughs) like this is this is great and i will not be judged by you or society i will wear whatever and blow whomever i want as long as i can breathe and kneel And Stoller writes, were it not for ongoing reports of sexual harassment and abuse in the wake of Me Too, it might appear at a glance that we now live in a fully liberated era of sexuality for women, the culmination of decades of feminist progress, which to me, the subtext there is like kind of like that faux feminism, choice feminism, Mm -hmm. feels like it's all wrapped up in there of like, are we... Forgetting what, like, feminism, it's not just mm-hmm. about your sexuality, um, although I hope that you are empowered in your sexuality. And she points to a couple of things that are floating around in the ether right now to to start to establish her point. So she says, in addition to popular new guides to women's sexual pleasure like OMG Yes, recent years have seen the mainstreaming of porn by and for women by figures like Erica Lust, the popularization of sex therapy, the rise of posh, ticketed women's-only sex parties, the ongoing proliferation of sex toys for women, and the diversification of sexual pleasure for lesbian, bi, and trans women, all accompanied by an insistence that closing the so-called orgasm gap is now within reach. In other words, at this point, y'all, you should be so empowered and so open and so liberated that, like, this just shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, we, we've accepted the fact that, like, Yes, women masturbate. We use vibrators. We can watch porn. We can pleasure ourselves. So the orgasm gap should be closed. But as I flagged, Caroline, um, to you, I find this argument overly broad. Okay. (laughs) Because I understand what she is getting at in terms of the over-prioritizing of achieving an orgasm, Mm -hmm. you know, but by packing all of that, all of that in like porn, sex toys, it feels like she's also collapsing the genuine importance of things like just normalizing sexual exploration, like exploring queerness, kink, masturbation. Like, I, I don't know. It felt a bit overly broad to me. But I, I think, and, and maybe this is also where, like, my critical reading skills should have clued me in quicker, because I think what she's really getting at with this kind of laundry list of evidence is that things like OMG, yes, and 
well, sometimes porn. I mean, a lot of porn is free. But sex therapy, posh-ticketed women-only sex parties, it seems like what she's getting at is this kind of pay-for-play yeah. aspect. Yeah, pay-for-play. And the use of the word posh, I mean, she's she's specifying, too, like what kind of pay-for-play we're also talking about here. Um, and, of course, she points out that, like, you know, like, that's all great, but, like, let us not forget that sexual empowerment and sexual pleasure is not the end goal of feminism. We still are contending with a lot of fuckery. Mm-hmm. Things like, she mentioned me too, but, like, she also talks about how, well, okay, like, if women are sitting here trying to, like, own their sexuality and have all the orgasms, we're still penalized for being sexual. Queer and trans women still face discrimination and violence. Um we still don't always have access to safe legal abortions. And hello, the double shift. So many of us are still working at work, working at home, working, you know, taking care of the kids, cleaning the kitchen. Like, as she points out, the double shift is not an aphrodisiac. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> but the thing is, like all of these sort of larger systemic cultural issues aside, because they are being pushed aside, by the idea that, well, ladies, 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 the orgasm gap is your problem. Like, you need to fix it because clearly something's wrong here. Like, clearly, like, this is an issue that needs to be fixed, not potentially an issue of, like, maybe you haven't discovered what works for you or maybe your body's just different. Like, there's a whole host of things that could actually be going on here. And so that idea of, quote-unquote, like, fixing yourself and paying to do it is part of Smith's female orgasm industrial complex. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back... The sexual revolution will be monetized. Stick around. So, Kristen, in Stoller's piece... Lean in sexuality and the labor of self-discovery, which is, you know, still an amazing title. Mm -hmm. Uh, She talks about all the different products out there that can help women orgasm. And one she mentioned is OMG Yes. And Kristen, by the way, I was not familiar with this website before reading this piece. But she says that OMG Yes is an online curriculum aimed at helping users perfect the female orgasm for a one-time only access fee. It's a series of instructional videos meant to bust taboos about sexual pleasure, which sounds good. Uh, it's 59 bucks for one season or $118 for two. And the Times in London called it, quote, nothing less than the next wave of an unfinished sexual revolution. Yeah, I think <laughs> I don't know that I agree with Stoller or the Times of London, <laughs> you know, because I'm sorry, anything that costs $59 to access is not is not going to be the next wave in an unfinished sexual revolution because only people who can afford that right. will be able to join that revolution. Yeah. And my quibble with Stoller is that uh, so I w- I'm familiar with OMGS. I have not ponied up the $59 to uh, to access their instructional videos, but even just like taking a cursory glance around 
the website, I found her description to be overly a little a little side eye, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not just aimed at helping users perfect the female orgasm. Um, I think the issue is just like, this is expensive. This is an expensive thing. And people are making a lot of money off of it. You get celebrities like Emma Watson mm-hmm. endorsing it. A friend of mine sent me a website called Oh My God Yes, and it's based on research, which is a complete study on on female sexuality. And uh, it's an expensive subscription, um, but it's worth it. And like you said at the beginning of our conversation, it's the commodification of pleasure that feels like the issue. Um, But I... To me, when you peel back the onion and ask, well, why would we even need curriculum like this? It's like, well, well, let's talk about sex ed then. I mean, oh my god, let's talk about like the generation that that OMGS is reaching, which is, I would say, a little more geared towards millennials and older. Mm. Where I think that even compared to Gen Z, we grew up in a more like sex negative mm-hmm. kind of environment and i don't know that it's like necessarily a bad thing for this kind of yeah well stuff to exist i agree and a sex negative environment that was hypersexual yes yes so like i'm not picking up britney spears but like think of the early 2000s when we were coming of age and in our faces were people like britney spears christina aguilera like um, young women, not that much older than us, who were forced to walk this bullshit line of being like super sexual, like being half naked all the time and like with lyrics that were about sex, but still expected to be like somehow like virginal and not having sex. And just like watching what happened to them when they did try to actually like get older and be humans with sex lives and boyfriends and like step outside of the bounds of that um like obviously that's like a whole different conversation for another time but yeah no i i totally agree like we did grow up in a time where like uh yeah sex negative but you're also supposed to be hypersexual as part of your like feminine duty i just think if 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 the issue is the capitalism and the money then just talk about that yeah yeah. And so But like I said, I'm playing the naysayer in this well, conversation. I, and I love it. But but Catherine Smith does. So her piece in The Atlantic, just please read it. It is she's such a good writer. It's the most uh unladylike article. And by that I mean it is like right up our alley as far as like it weaves in personal experiences, sex, money, history. There's just a lot of great stuff in there. And so in her piece, she details her very time-consuming journey to try to address her quote-unquote problem. And throughout her piece, you can tell that it is in quotes, like the problem of being a woman in her late 30s who has never had an orgasm. Uh, And she also details why it is supposedly a problem. Uh, It's way less about her because like she's very clear that like I love sex I'm I love sex so much to the point where I think I'm pretty kinky I have a solid sex drive I just don't orgasm and it's way less about her and way more about the men that she has sex with in relationships or not 
who are just so incredibly fucking off-put. Men who uh, either kind of hint at or explicitly tell her, like, I can't do this with someone who's not going to come. I I feel less masculine. I feel unsure about my performance. And uh, I, I just can't do this. Like, she even talks about a guy who, like, she could have seen herself marrying. Mm-hmm. And he tells her later they've broken up. It's been like a year since they broke up and they're hooking up. Mm -hmm. And he is clear with her that like the lack of orgasm thing is why he ended it. Not I don't find you attractive. Not I don't think you're smart and funny. You can't orgasm. And really like I pride myself. And this is a version of what she's heard from a lot of men. I pride myself on being able to make women come and like fast and hard and awesome. And the fact that you can't like that's not sustainable. Well, and it's it's a mind fuck, too, because it is supposed to be kind of a more enlightened flavor of heterosexual masculinity for a man to be for the whole she comes first. And she does address like the actual book. She comes first. Um, We as. As cis women who are in relationships with cis men, like, the mark of a good man is that he wants you to come first, right? Yeah. Is that he will go down on you for, like, seven days and seven <laughs> nights. Um, and I can understand if you are a guy who was grown up, too, with, like, feeling kind of woke with just how important making your partner come uh like if that is a thing for you i don't know it's like a mind fuck all around it's yeah Yeah, because she does admit like because she at one point has a sexual relationship with a guy who it's hard for him to achieve orgasm and she's like okay like i see how this is frustrating from that perspective Mm -hmm. because like, I want to pleasure my partner. Right. I want them to experience pleasure. But then that gets into the question we asked at the top, which is like, who is this for? Because she points out, is it that I'm pleasuring my partner? Or it's that I'm able to pleasure my partner? Or is it just like we are all over prioritizing yeah. an orgasm and again, yeah. like trying to apply a benchmark of this is what sexual pleasure looks like and it is an orgasm and to not achieve that is less than satisfactory. Right. It's not sex, which I think and that's Mm. an I'm making air quotes if you couldn't hear it in my voice. But I think that, you know, side note, I think that gets back to a lot of what Kristen just said about sex ed of like um, we have all of these real fucked up ideas about what is sex and Mm -hmm. what is not sex. Mm -hmm. And in our large cultural mind obviously this is painting with the broadest brush uh like sex is penis in vagina long enough that you both come and preferably at the same time at the same time with a big old o face Mm -hmm. and anything else is just somehow like not cutting the mustard um so i did want to share with you a couple of the things she spent money on um she also got a whole mess of suggestions from both friends of hers and sexperts that she talked to. Um, But the ones that she actually tried out, uh, she met with a sex therapist, spent 250 bucks on that. 
The therapist advised her, this is Catherine, to eat more dark chocolate, stop taking birth control, and sign up for orgasm camp, an immersive experience somewhere in the American Southwest that would have me masturbating all day long. She also sent me home with some female-centric 1980s (laughs) porn, a list of recommended herbs and vitamins, and a prescription for Viagra that the pharmacist, alarmed by my gender, initially refused to fill. I feel like this sex therapist was like the... uh... Was was the person who came up with the Dove chocolate commercials? It's <laughs> like women in satin eating dark chocolate. Only a chocolate this pure can be this silky. Well, Catherine reports that she tried everything except the overpriced orgasm camp, but no dice. She just got bored because she felt like she was doing homework. She then makes an appointment with uh, someone named Dr. M., who is a sensual touch therapist. That He's she, also not an actual doctor. Yeah, not an actual doctor, whom she'd read about in New York Magazine, and the price listed was just optional donations appreciated. Uh, and then, and then, for 600 bucks, she gets two hours with a tantric healer. There was lots of, like, massaging and holding, tender holding. Um, but, but... No orgasms. And then <laughs> some of the recommendations she got, uh, some of them like, oh, my God, that, that tracks. I, I would expect that. Like somebody recommends hypnosis. Someone recommends a sex educator's workshop. Uh, somebody recommended a, an orgasmic meditation company whose classes uh, run for four ninety nine for a weekend course up to 60 grand for a year-long membership. And that place does not exist anymore. Doesn't exist anymore. Probably because they couldn't find people to pay $60,000. Jesus Christ. There's there's also an elite New York City-based sex club for millennials. I love it. I just picture that it looks like the wing inside. Yeah, it's like (laughs) Instagram ready. And let's let's talk about the price. It's $1,690. So $69 is baked into the price. Uh, That's for a year of unlimited access to the Millennial Sex Club. Also, though, this description made me cringe so hard. That's the price for um, access to cannabis-friendly sex parties featuring fire performers and domination by professionals, which to me sounds like a trip to Burning Man. (laughs) And thank you, but no thank you. No, I when, when I'm at a party... We've all been to these parties. When I'm at a party and someone with, like, the fire hoops shows up, I'm like, I'm out. Yeah, I'm going to go. There's also a wellness clinic in New York uh, called May's Women's Sexual Health. Um, and a trip there would include a 90-minute initial visit with a therapist and a gynecologist. That's $530 before insurance, blood work included. Jesus Christ, you're taking my blood. Um, and then... As Catherine points out, an indeterminate number of follow-up visits. It's $380 for the second visit, $250 for each appointment after that before insurance, additional testing not included. And through these visits, you will get, I don't know if prescribed is the right word, but you will get prescribed various creams, sex toys, porn, uh, testosterone replacement therapy, a prescription for Wellbutrin, which I was like, hmm, huh, 
Interesting. Um, and something called the O shot, which I've heard about through Dr. Jen Gunter, former unladylike guest and internet gynecologist extraordinaire. It's a treatment where they take blood from your arm and then basically inject it into your vagina. And Dr. Jen Gunter says, please don't do that. And, you know, Catherine gets at her feelings that she's like experiencing through all of these various relationships, but also the process that she went through for the article of like going through all of these courses and classes and trying to figure out what to do. She wrote, I felt guilty at the prospect of inaction, as if failing to part with a huge chunk of my savings, not to mention all my leisure time, were somehow an abrogation of my responsibilities as a woman. So all of that pressure from, like, be empowered, own your sexuality. Also, I'm a man and I'm telling you you're not enough for me because you can't come. Like, she ends up feeling like, oh, well, because I'm not spending my life savings, I guess I'm not working hard enough. And then so she starts asking herself, of course, like, fuck, who am I trying to have an orgasm for? It's time for a quick break. When we come back, I take a stand for faking orgasms. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And the Kool-Aid man. Stick around. (laughs) So, Caroline, for me, one of the most interesting parts of Catherine Smith's article was about her faking orgasms. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because as we've talked about, she gets horny. She enjoys sex. It's not that she's not satisfied. She just doesn't have an orgasm. Mm -hmm. And so she talks about how she started faking orgasms and how it made the whole experience more pleasurable for her because it, it it kind of gave her some power back. Yeah. And as someone who went through a faking it phase when I was younger, and I would do it usually in like hookup scenarios mm-hmm. when I was just like, okay, I'm ready. Like I, I really don't um, want to have to like stick around here. I've gotten what I need from this. Yeah. And so I'd like to go to bed now, you know? <laughs> and... I totally understood what she meant by that. Like, is faking orgasms a great idea? No. It's, I mean, <laughs> ultimately, no. And um, and I felt like a bad feminist for doing it. Yeah. But at the same time, if I knew I was not going to have an orgasm through vaginal penetration, because that is how my body works and many bodies Mm -hmm. work. And I didn't care for, you know, really, let's go ahead and admit it, like largely probably a stranger just like having to spend a lot of time like, you know, sussing out my clit. Um, (laughs) Sussing out my clit. No, please don't apologize. Um, then making an orgasm was like it, it. It gave me the control to yeah. be able to say like, "Hey, we're good. You, we're good. You feel good. 
I feel good. Like I wasn't I wasn't going to sleep unsatisfied. Yeah. I was just ready to go to sleep. Yeah, and that's that's her thing. She she talks about how it gave her a glimpse of what the dynamic would be like if she hadn't been fucking all these insecure men. Mm-hmm. Because she talks about how her her husband, whom she divorced, but her husband was like so fucking full of himself. Yeah. And that made him ultimately a bad partner. But in bed, he was incredible. Because yeah. he, he took her at her word. You don't come, but you're enjoying yourself. I'm great at sex. I'm going to do it to you. I'm going to get off and we're going to be happy. Yeah. And so he would just confidently fuck his wife and they would both be happy. She would have gotten some good sex. He would have had his orgasm or whatever. And like, you know, I'm well, massively but- oversimplifying someone's <laughs> marital relationship, but you get the point. And so... For her to leave that relationship and then have to face all of these men who were, like, too insecure to accept her truth on its face of, like, no, I'm I'm fine. It finally just took all that bullshit off the table and let her just enjoy it and let them enjoy it as well and believe that they'd gotten her off and they'd achieved their goal. Right. Because uh, one thing that she said that made me say, oh, yes, OMG, yes, <laughs> Um was her frustration with men who would not believe her. Right. When she would say, hey, I'm not going to have an orgasm. It's totally fine. I really enjoy w- everything that we're doing. So don't don't get hung up on that. Mm-hmm. And they get fucking hung up on that. Yeah. Now, like I said, like, I, I, I do think that in, like, relationship context and things like that, like, you can't necessarily fake it till you make it because at some point someone's going to find out and then you have... Trust issues, whatever. Yeah, it's like a weird Shakespearean comedy. <laughs> <laughs> kind of is. <laughs> but, um, but I so appreciate it. I think that goes for regardless of your identity, your anatomy, whatever. I do think collectively we might all be more satisfied if we started trusting people when they say that they do or don't enjoy something. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I appreciate she she quotes uh, Lux Alptrom, who's a sex educator, author, podcaster, too, I believe, who says that for many men, the female orgasm has become, quote, the primary, if not entire purpose for pursuing sex, a sentiment that suggests that anyone who isn't able or doesn't want to achieve orgasm is some kind of freak or failure. And this is where, Kristen, the book She Comes First comes in. Uh, It was a book written by sex therapist Ian Kerner in 2004. And as Alptrom writes, it established a new paradigm in which the female orgasm, once seen as mythic, was recast as compulsory. Um, And Alptrom says that it positions the female climax, quote, as a badge of honor and proof of a man's virility, rendering women's actual needs, desires and authentic pleasures subordinate to the appeasement of the heterosexual male ego. Yeah, it's still like you're ultimately like performing pleasure for a man. And I think at the same time we were talking about this earlier I can also see if you are like a cishet guy raised in in a she comes first kind mm-hmm. of culture, how you might not even realize that that is what you are doing yeah, by oh, being yeah. so insistent. Like you think that 
that that is you being a really good progressive partner. Yeah, and if you take the woman in question at her word that, like, no, I'm fine, that, well, maybe she's being passive-aggressive, maybe she's not telling me the truth, and and if I don't give her an orgasm, like, that makes me a bad guy. And a bad lover. And a bad lover. And so, like, that is the, as she calls it, wild goose chase that Catherine Smith went on in an effort to finally become someone who orgasms. And she just sort of reaches this point of, like, fuck it. Like, fuck it. I have always been happy with sex the way that I experience it. Shout out to Sarah Stoller and Catherine Smith for their amazing work. We're going to link to both of their articles in the source post for this episode, and they are definitely worth a read. And we are so curious to know what unladies think about the orgasm gap, the commodification of sex, faking it, all of this juicy stuff that we talked about this episode. You can let us know on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Unladylike Media, or you can drop us a line at hello at unladylike.co. And of course, you can support Caroline and me by joining our Patreon. You'll get all 70 plus sweet, sweet bonus episodes, a new one every week, including our recent history of the fat liberation movement. So find it over at patreon.com slash unladylike media. Nora Ritchie is the senior producer of Unladylike. Michelle O'Brien is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Next week... So what's interesting in porn is that a lot of squirting in porn is faked. So when you see, like, squirting compilations, A, they're often performers who don't necessarily squirt in other scenes um, and are using water or pee or whatever to just fake it. And it's often, like, done in this very, like, visually arresting way where it's this like arcing stream of fluid. And that's not always everybody's experience. Like for me, it just feels more like this kind of like unfocused explosion. It's not arcing up beautifully like a fountain. It's just like, there it goes. We're talking with writer and podcast host Lux Alptraum. And does that name ring a bell? Yes, it does, because she's a sex educator we referenced in this Patreon episode. Lux is going to set the record straight about squirting and what all the gush is about. Plus, we'll talk to an unladylike listener who's working through her shame around squirting, which is partly attributed to this podcast. You don't want to miss this episode, y'all. So make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. Suss out that clit. Bend over the desk. <laughs> I'm dying looking at my transcription. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah. <laughs> Sussing out my clit. <laughs> Stitcher.